The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you, Miss Meg, as always. invite your attention this morning to actually an Old Testament passage, Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17 this morning. We're going to be looking at just two verses today that I, I, I think will provide you a very unique twist, but not an unbiblical one, on the gospel and the cross. And so if you're visiting with us, we have just kind of taken a break through a study of the book of Mark the last several months. And we'll be looking at this week, why the cross? Why the cross? Uh, we talk about the cross. We have a cross up there. Uh, maybe you're wearing a cross, but why the cross? We'll be looking at those things. So I invite you to those passages. Uh, as you're turning, I just want to remind you that uh, on Sunday evenings, all those who are able and have a, a capability at Sunday nights at 8.30, we do a pastor, Ask the Pastor, uh, Facebook Live on our Facebook page, Tower View Baptist Church. Uh, tonight, the uh, I don't know where he's at. Nelson, wave your hand so everyone knows who you are. Uh, there he is. Uh, last week we had Matt, our youth pastor, pastor of students, Pastor Matt was on. Uh, Mr. Nelson Nisley will be on tonight assisting with some questions. And uh, you've got some good curveballs tonight, brother. I think that's safe to say, but you will do fine. And uh, you will make us all look good. So uh, it'll be good. And uh, you and Matt always do that well. So tonight at 830, you're welcome to join us. And uh, if you want more information, we can help you with that. Again, I just want to say as you're turning those passages, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. If you helped at the Easter event, guys, it was amazing. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we are blessed beyond a blessing. Uh, usually when those things get done, we all just go out and grab lunch and a few of us come back. It was like an army setting up and an army tearing down. So thank you super so much. If you want to have fun, try and put these chairs in rows and figure out where they go. That is a puzzle. And you have to have two Bibles on the back, and you have to have the communion cups on the back. Figure that one out. It's really harder than it seems. So there you go. So this week, why the cross? Next week, why the resurrection? And so we will look towards Easter Sunday next week. Well, as many of you know, it's, it's hard to believe this, but if you have seen the Passion of the Christ movie, will you raise your hand? Now, let me really date ourselves. That was 13 years ago. Wow. Uh, Mel Gibson didn't have white hair back then, I'm pretty sure, if he does now, but... You know, if you know anything about this movie, The Passion of the Christ, it was an unstudioed uh, version. It was an independent film, The Passion of the Christ was. It grossed over $611 million in 2004 alone. That's a lot of money, folks. You can almost buy the royals and get them set straight for that money, you know? You can do that. It was the second highest grossing film behind uh, the, the movie, independent movie, that is Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, just some random facts about the movie. Uh, yeah, quite an ironic title to be behind, huh? But the lightning struck on the set several times. Uh, very interesting little fact about it. Uh, most of the cast and crew converted to some form of Christianity, uh, at least under the big umbrella term Christianity, after the film itself. Unbelieving people became Christians after that. Very ironic. Uh, and then the goriness of all of it led many people to go to the hospital. If you saw it in the theaters, you remember it had an R-rated tag. Do you remember, how many of y'all saw it in the theaters? Just by chance. I was at the old, uh, not North Glen, whatever that is now, off, is North Glen off 152? 
It was, yeah, the old North Glen Theater, which is now the B&B, I think, off 152 and Brighton there. But, you know, um, people came away saying something I think that is very true. They said, if that is how bad it was, no wonder Jesus loved us so much. You saw that movie, you, you, you can get that sense. But wisdom wasn't born with anyone, nor will it die with anyone. And often we get to the stage where with the passion of the Christ, with anything that we do, we talk so much about the physical sufferings of Christ, the physical sufferings, that we almost miss what the spiritual side, if you will, has to offer. Because usually if you listen to a pastor on the TV, they will talk about those things, right? They'll talk about the size of the nails, how they had to hold him up, and and his feet, uh, Christ's feet had to be held up that way. Uh, They'll talk about how a spear went into Jesus' side. They'll talk about how the nails, uh, or or, I'm sorry, the crown of thorns was put on his head. And those things are all so true. And in order to keep himself alive, Jesus had to pull himself up. That's even possible in that state. Pull himself up to breathe, even to gasp for a breath of air. Because when you died of crucifixion, you died of suffocation. But the cross isn't just about the physical sufferings of Christ, although important as they may be. Christ was a human. He suffered greatly. He was fully human, fully divine. But so much attention often, especially in movies, is given to the physical sufferings that we miss, perhaps, what we will study about today and what we will go through. First Peter reminds us in First Peter chapter 4 that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The church at large is often missing the point of what the gospel of Jesus is about. Is it about the physical sufferings? Perhaps. But even more so, it's about what Christ in a spiritual state did for us. That'll challenge a lot of churches, including our own, because often that is what we focus on, and rightfully so to its place. But today I want to go a little bit deeper than that. What did Jesus actually do on that cross? Why the cross? I mean, who, who are, Darren, who are you to say that all these people who focus on the physical sufferings might not have the full corner on the gospel? Well, the Bible says otherwise, even though it includes the physical sufferings. So friends, what I want to remind us today with the big idea is simply this, is that Jesus was fixed on the cross and then consumed by God's wrath. And we should be overwhelmed by the grace as we are fixed on the cross. Do you see that dichotomy there? History gives me the right to say it's not just about the physical sufferings, although important, it is about something so much deeper than that, so much that your salvation hangs on it. I mean, think about it. If Jesus, well, let me just say this. You know, you know this, there's pop music. You, you know what pop music is? For those of you who grew up in this era, Sonny and Cher. And uh, the love on the, you know, the love and all that good stuff. For you 1990s people, the Backstreet Boys, that's pop music. For you more recent, or, or in Christian music, the Christian singer Carmen. I hope I'm not offending anyone with that, but you know who Carmen was? He was a pop singer. Or most recently, the Bieberites, the Justin Believers, or however you say that. that. That's called pop music. Why? Because it's popular for a time, but it's not a legacy. I I hope we're not singing Justin Bieber for the rest of our lives, praise the Lord, but that's how it goes. You have pop music, don't you? You also have pop theology. And pop theology is is basically, it springs up for a while, and it's preachers who are good at preaching, but don't really know the facts behind it. So when someone comes to you and says that the cross is not all about just the physical sufferings of Christ, someone might say, well, who are you? Well, if you stick that great charlatan Benny Hinn next to me, and you put me over here, and you say, Benny, 
tell me what you believe the Bible says. Benny Hinn's going to tell you, well, I believe I can have a Porsche. I can stay at five-star hotels, and it's God's will for me to ride in a private jet because Jesus wouldn't have ridden on anything less than a private jet, right? And you'll ask him, where did you get that information? You know what he'll say? I got it from the Bible. And then we go over here, and you say, Darren, do you ride on a five-star jet? I said, have you seen that black car out there? It ain't a five-star jet. That's for sure. I'm grateful for it. But this is what the Bible says. So who's right? Who's right? How do you tell in those debates? Well, it comes down to this question. You look at the context. Friends, is what this guy is saying over here, writers, what this guy is saying over here? And you also look at history. Do you know that in 2,000 years of Christian history, that the physical sufferings of Christ have often been de-elevated to what we are going to be talking about today? Not unimportant, but de-elevated to what we're talking about today. If someone comes to you and says, I believe this to be true, but you scan it through the filter of church history and they're the only guy saying that that guy's probably on the out left field out in the he's a black sheep he's a sore thumb and he's a weed that pops up among good stuff what is your point darren friends there are people who say god sent his son and lived a perfect life and that because they beat him they crucified him they stuck a spear in his side and god looked at the sufferings of the hands of men and he considered that to be payment that he died at the hands of men just by the physical suffering Friends, that was denounced as heresy long, long ago. It doesn't stop at the physical sufferings of Christ. We have to go deeper. And what is that news? That news is that on that cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. The Romans killed him, sure. The Jews put him up for execution, absolutely. But what happened on that cross that caused God to forgive us? We're going to answer that in two questions today. Why the cross? The cross is necessary because it answers the Bible's greatest quandary. How can a just God justify, set legally apart, unrighteous, wicked people such as us? And secondly, we'll see in Isaiah, because it fulfills God's predetermined plan. Should we focus on the physical sufferings? To a degree. But we would be remiss in our duty as Christians, historically, theologically, biblically, practically, all those adverbial phrases if we don't answer these two questions. So with that in mind, I hope that whets your appetite. Uh, I walked by one Sunday school class and they were talking about pizza, so I'm already getting hungry. But you know how that goes. But you know what? I'm just giving you a hard time, Jeff Jones. Don't worry. They were done with their lesson. <laughs> I told him I'd kidding. Will you join me in standing in God's word this morning? Friends, I hope you know when we're up here, we joke and it's, it's serious, but uh, we love you guys because we know one thing I love about this church, and we heard it from people yesterday, is you can walk in this church and feel like you're at home. I hope that's you, because not only do we preach God's word, I pray, but we also love in a way and care for another that we do. I pray that's it. So, Brother Jeff, I just want to say thank you for faithfully teaching God's word each Sunday, as with all our teachers. Amen. That is rare in Sunday school, and we are blessed with so many great teachers. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. One verse, and we're going to beeline over to Isaiah. Proverbs 17, 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. What? How's that the cross? Let me read that again. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. And if you will, if you can, uh, flip over to Isaiah 53.10, just for one second. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Two verses this morning. This is, of course, the great chapter of the suffering Messiah, the prophecy most fulfilled in Christ. And it says in Isaiah 53.10, the ESV, 
it says, but, or yet, it was God's will, or the will of the Lord, to crush him. That's Jesus. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Friends, I want to talk about these things today because they're so important for your faith as we ask the question, why the cross? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you that we can joyously smile and and laugh, but also seriously come before your word because it is a true joy. Father, we have the greatest divine author here. Lord, you, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness in this book. Father, this is not just another book on a shelf. This is the authoritative word of God. So Lord, I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would work among us this morning, that we would be enlightened, illumined, as the old words say, to see more of Christ. And as we see more of Christ and what he did for us in the gospel, that we would just be just immersed in the love that has been shown us in him. Father, I pray for anyone among us that knows not Jesus, that you would speak to them through the word, not because of my words, but by your word and your spirit, applying that to their hearts. Father, thank you for this dear congregation. Thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. All right. That is a longer introduction than I usually give, but I needed to set the stage with that because this is, friends, the biggest question. The biggest question. This is what drove people of the old days mad. How can a righteous God who is perfectly holy justify, set apart, make legally right in his eyes those people who are not? That's a big question. And if you keep your focus, and we'll answer that question first, is for, it solves, though, the cross, the biggest quandary of that question that comes in in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 5. And let me read that to you one more time. It says... He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are alike both an abomination to the Lord. You know, we are called, aren't we, in, in Scripture, in, in Colossians 3, to forgive each other. But there's no sacrifice. If, if, if Matt uh, tells me something bad about my favorite sports team and I get mad and, you know, I'm going to break fellowship over that, I don't have, Matt, I, Matt doesn't have to come up and sacrifice a goat to offer forgiveness to me or likewise. Aren't you grateful for that? But there had to be some sacrifice. He that justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Most of our songs, we sing about this, and rightfully so. We, to be justified is to be declared right in God's eyes. It's to be legally right. It's, to, it's the fact that you have done such wrong in God's eyes that there's nothing that can extinguish the punishment you deserve, but now someone comes and says, paid in full, done. That's what it means to justify, to set it apart. And we sing about this and praise God for that, that we who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. But there is a problem here. The Bible says anyone who declares the wicked to be right when they are not right, they are an abomination before him. What does that word abomination mean? It is the worst thing that could, you could think of times a million. That's what it means in very simple language. If God declares you to be right before him, then he has made himself to be an abomination. If God forgives the wicked, then he himself becomes an abomination. That is, the, that is the Bible's biggest question. How can this holy God, who is completely separate, not normal, not anything there, do anything to help us who are normal, common sinners just like that? That is the biggest question. That's what drove Luther to break away from the Catholic Church. That's what drove uh, uh, people in the English history books to die on a stake for the Bible being translated to English so that the common person could read it. This one question. How can God do that? Why would God do that? 
Well, friends, let me put it this way. If you had a judge who, if you know someone, this illustration has been well used by many pastors, but if you have a person who has murdered someone else and the evidence is there and they come to sentence time and they say, well, do you have any last words? And he says, well, I, you know, I didn't mean to do it. I just I ate some bad food and it caused me to do this terrible thing. And if the judge looked at them and said, yeah, I have those days too. You know, I can, I, I'm, I'm with you. Okay, you murdered someone, no big deal. Just, just walk away. Say, what? You'd be on every news channel screaming out, that's terrible, that's ridiculous. The judge on the bench is more unjust than the people he's trying to sentence. Get him out of there. This is the problem that we have in the Bible. God says that he will throw men and women in a literal, conscious, eternal hell. But at the same time, people get mad when we say that. See, heaven's got a problem. If God is a just God, he can't forgive. He must punish the wicked. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament sacrifices were there? They were there because it's a symbol and a type. And if God justifies, if he forgives, if he sets apart someone who is wicked like us to be innocent, then God himself is an abomination and a wicked one, according to this passage. How do you solve this problem? You can see that it was necessary then for God to die. An angel could not have died for your sins. That's why we differ from Jehovah's Witnesses. I'll mention that in a second in in, in there. But this is why we do not believe that just a a super angel could have died for your sins. This is why we believe that a person, a pastor, a priest, a shaman, a a miracle worker, you know, whatever, a black witch doctor, uh, whatever, a black magic doctor, whatever it is, cannot forgive your sins. It has to be someone uniquely qualified because the law demands that sinners die. It demands it. You can't push that away. You, you, some, say, some say, well, you know, Darren, God just, it's all about the physical sufferings. It's deeper than that, friends. You see, because let me remind you of this. I, I used this language a few months ago, but let me remind this of you, friends. If God let every person run headlong into hell, he would still be just. He would, his reputation would still remain untarnished. Do you realize that? The fact that God would save one of you, of me, shows that he is a God of grace. Why did God have to save anybody? Did he? Was he obligated to because we were pretty enough? Well, some of you, some of you are pretty, pretty people. That's great. Some of you are strong. But what did Matt read? Remember your callings, brother. Were many of you wise? Were many of you strong? No, it's foolishness. Friends, what I'm saying up here is absolute foolishness to the natural human mind. Because why would a God who is so holy, so just, so righteous, have anything to do with silly little people like us who have nothing to offer to him but sin, 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 and sin? Why would he do that? He would be wrong, sinful, and the devil would come to him and say, remember when we sinned against you, Lord? Remember that? Where's your justice now, God? These balls of dirt sin against you. God, you've become just like me. The devil would throw it at God. That's the Bible's biggest question. But friends, the only way that God can forgive sinful men and the only way to do that and fulfill the law's demands is that he himself comes down and pays the penalty for your sin. That is the only way that a righteous God can be righteous and still justify, set apart, the wicked. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that despite everything that you have offered God, that I've offered God, that our churches collectively have offered God, that he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. Come to me anyone who thirsts and I will let him thirst no more. 
What an amazing God that we serve. Uh, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said, Would that God make hell so real to us that we cannot rest. The world says, how can God love and send anyone to hell? But the Bible says, heaven says, how can God be just and allow anyone to enter in? Friends, it's only because of Christ. That's why the cross. The greatest quandary is, how can God be just and still justify wicked people? It's because his son took our punishment and our place. If at your church you never hear about hell preached, you never hear about justice preached, you run away as fast as you can. You break speed limit laws if you need to to get out of that church as fast as you can. Why? Because, friends, the kingdom of God is like the time between D-Day and V-Day, to use World War II terms. Tactically, Satan is defeated, and soon he will be thrown into hell forever. That is why the cross. But, you know, we often get knocks on our doors, don't we? And we get, I don't know if they look like this, but this is kind of a unique picture of people who may pop in your door. Uh, I knock on doors, so I can only imagine what people think when I knock on their door and smile on Tuesday afternoons. But, you know, this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses, with respect, are so blasphemous to God. I mean that with respect. We believe as Baptists, they have the religious liberty to believe what they want, but eternally, spiritually, biblically, they're wrong. Why? Do I say that pig-headedly because we're Baptists? No, I say that because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that... Uh, Joe's witnesses say when the world fell, God created an innocent person, Jesus, and took the innocent being independent from God to fix the problem. What's the problem with that? The problem is the Son of God is not a created being. The Son of God is the one who drips from his hands and holds everything in the unison, just like that. He's the one who can sleep in the boat. Do you ever think about that? The biblical illustration? Jesus is just sleeping away. He's in his rim sleep, and he's just sleeping away, and all of a sudden, what happens? the disciples come and wake him up why are you asleep wake up wake up and jesus just says a word and what happens to the storm stops but if you believe the god of jehovah's witnesses then jesus is just another created thing like you and me the only way a god of the law can be satisfied is by sending himself to die for our sins you have that against the jehovah's witness if he ain't god god made the law to satisfy it and he can't satisfy your sins that's why it's like a lottery to be a JW, because at that point, only 144,000 are going to make it. And those aren't good odds when you take 144,000 over to 8 billion people. It doesn't work too well in your favor. So when a Joe host comes through, knocks on your door, start crying like you're, you're crying. Why? And they ask, why are you crying? And you just simply say to them, because with your God, we're all headed to hell. Only Jesus can pray, pay the price that is necessary to satisfy God's demands. That's why the cross. For God to forgive the wicked and still be just, he must be dead, die in our place, in the wicked's place. Only he can forgive. Only he can forgive. That's the first point. The second question we need to answer is why the cross? Not only does it allow us to see the greatest quandary solved because God forgives the wicked and can still be just, but secondly, I want you to flip over to Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10. Because it fulfills God's predetermined plan. And I, we were talking about this in our Sunday school class about uh, predestination and all those great things. Friends, let's be honest. God, the Bible uses the word predestinate. We don't have time to chase that rabbit. But I will say that nothing that happens in this world surprises God. I hope, that's, I hope you believe that. Uh, if you believe that God is surprised, then, uh, then uh, we'll be friends. But just know I might run away for a second and, and, and cry. But... Uh, in all seriousness, our God does not get surprised. God does not walk up and say, wow, I planned out this day. Oh, my goodness. 
Darren didn't do what I thought he'd do. What am I going to do? Oh, God is not a choose-your-own-adventure book from the 1980s. If you remember those books, if, if this, go to page 37. Oh, you're dead. You've got to go back to the start of the book. That's not how God works. God is predetermined. He's sovereign. He's providential. He's all-controlling in, in effect. And yes, there are big questions that come out of that. If God knew everything, then how can there be sin in the world? All the, those are ch- rabbits will chase, but I need you to know that God is sovereign over all things. If he's not, why pray? I mean, did you ever think about that? If God is not sovereign, why pray? Why try? It's like going in, you know, it's like, a, well, it's like trusting that, that person you know, that you know they might get the work done, but you have to be there to prod them all the time. None of you are procrastinators, I know. But many people are in the real world. There are a lot of procrastinators. And you know if you give them something, you know, you give them some space to be polite and professional, all those things. But eventually you've got to email them, you've got to call them, and sometimes you've got to take the, the little uh, th- thing in your fireplace and poke them a little bit to get them to go. Our God's not like that. He is sovereign. And as part of God's sovereign plan, you need to see what Isaiah 53 verse 10 says. Let's read it together. This is a chapter about the suffering Messiah, and it says this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord to crush him. Acts 2.23 says, Peter preaching, he said, According, Jesus died and was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So friends, why the cross? Why the cross? Well, first, let me ask this. What is it about the death of the Son of God that leads to our forgiveness? How does it satisfy the law, all those demands that we have? Well, let me ask you a question back. From what are you saved? If you are saved, we use that word a lot. From what are you saved? Is it sin? No. This may surprise some of you, but you are not saved from sin. Sin wasn't chasing after you. Sin wasn't going to throw you into hell. You have sinned, but the sin caused something else. Sin isn't a person, sin isn't a living thing, but, and sin isn't a being that will judge you. From what have you been saved? It's not a what, but a who. You are not saved from, you are saved from sin, but you're not primarily saved from sin. Friends, let, uh, Amy, if you want to throw this up there, the faith lesson to this is this. This is the biblical gospel. It is not just from sin that we need to be saved, but from God's wrath. We are, ultimate problem isn't with sin, it's with who? It's with God. That sounds so crazy because we see that we, even presenting the gospel and evangelizing, we say, you know, God has saved you from your sin. Yes, but God has ultimately saved you from himself. Whoa, what does that mean? Friends, we are saved by God, from God, to God, for God, to put it very theological. The gospel teaches me that I am saved from God, Romans 5.10, by God, Titus 3, 4, and 5, to God, 1 Peter 3.18, and for God. If you have been saved, you have been saved from God himself. Wow. What does this mean? It means that God is the judge of the universe, and you've sinned. And since you've sinned, you've made yourself an enemy to God. I have as well before the just judge, and he will throw you into hell. Do you not know him? Darren, God would never throw anyone into hell. That makes a great Hallmark card verse. It really does. I live in a mile and a half from the Hallmark plant. That would be great to start production on. That would be a great popular Christian song and Christian radio. But friends, Matthew 10, 28, I'm reading straight from Scripture. Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Jesus speaking, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and hell in, body and soul in hell. Look, God is not PC with our culture. Why the cross? 
because God himself has the authority to throw people into hell, not willy-nilly, not, not without any plan. Remember, he's a sovereign God. He has plans. But because he is a just and at the same time loving God. Friends, we are enemies of God. James 4.4 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, enemy of God means simply this. Not only were we enemies of God holding a gun to him, so to speak, but God's got his big old bazooka right at our heads as well. And, you know, I've heard pastors say before, well, you know, you've got your gun to God, you're an enemy of God, just put your gun down. And it'll be, well, that doesn't take away the threat. The threat is, is that God himself, we have broken his law and we can still go to hell. Even if we say, here it is, something supernatural had to happen. Friends, you can lay down your arms, so to speak. God has said in the Old Testament, I will hate them, I will fight against them. The God of the 21st century church is much different than the God of the last 2,000 years of American uh, of Christian history. You were an enemy of God, but God is also your enemy. The, Amos says, be prepared to meet thy God. Revelation says that even the greatest men of the, you know, I think of uh, uh, WWE, just so, I'm not a WWE fan, by the way, but this just came to mind. Uh, do you remember uh, Andre the Giant? Some of y'all remember that. Andre the Giant fought Hulk Hogan, I hope, Hulk Hogan, however you say his name, in the first match 30 years ago. Do you remember this? And Andre the Giant was like eight feet tall. He was in the greatest movie ever told, uh, The Princess Bride, you know, those great movies. And Andre the Giant, on the day of Revelation, the big old guy that he was, he's dead, but, but if he was alive at the end of Revelation, he would be hiding in the rocks. Andre the Giant, the guy that, that could just smash you by doing a pile driver to the, to the bench. He's hiding in the rocks. What's he afraid of? Is he afraid of sin chasing him down? No, he's afraid of this God who's coming back, who's going to set all things right. And I still have his little action figure, and trust me, I'd hide him in a cave just like that. Because God is coming back. When God comes back, he's not going to say, well, please, if you'd only believed in me, I guess I have no choice. I guess I have to put you in hell. You have to go in timeout for a little bit. Friends, we don't have a puny God. We have a God who's coming back in victory, who's coming back to set all things right. And yes, he is equally just, loving, and forgiving to put people into hell, to cast them into hell. Why? Because God is not my buddy? No, friends, God, it says that through Christ, he's closer than a brother. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have broken God's law, but where does the punishment come from? The punishment comes from, if you say, some, you know, some people say it this way, if you say if you sin, that's not God's just punishment on you. That just mean, that If you sin, that must just be like gravity. If you jump off a building, there's going to be consequences. Friend, no. We don't believe in karma. We believe in judgment. God says that he will judge people in their sins. I will come against you, it says in Jeremiah, and I will set my face against you. What are you saved from? You are not saved necessarily from sin. You are saved from God carrying out everything. It should be carried out on you and me and everyone else just for being sinners in his eyes. We are saved from his wrath. It's just wrath. And on that cross, it was not the spear, the nails, the Romans, the suffering man that heaped on Jesus, the thief. It didn't do that. What did it say here? Look back at your text. I want to go back to the Bible, always. It says, it was whose will to crush him? It was God's will. God used the evilness of the Romans and the Jews and all that conspired. But 
Lord, the Lord is God. It pleased him to crush him. It's like, I, I, I tried to find a picture of this. I couldn't find it. You all know what a millstone is. Some of you who are older know what this is. You grew up on farms, a millstone. You have one big round here. I'll try and be visual. Pastors are supposed to be visual for the visual learners. Here you go. Here's my visual. This is a millstone. It's circle. It's, it's actually a stool, but you get the point. It's a millstone. It's circle. And they would take one big rock like that, and that was flat. And then they'd take another rock that spun around, and they would crush up the grain, and they'd crush it all. You've seen millstones. You, you know what I'm talking about. Have, have you all seen millstones before? You know what we're saying. What we are saying here, what the Bible is saying more specifically, is that if you see Jesus, this is what happened to him. God took him on that cross, and he ground him into powder, so to speak. He crushed his one and only son. That's why the cross. Not because of the nails, not because of the spear, but it's like standing on the foot of a thousand foot dam, uh, a thousand foot wide dam, and all this flood just coming on you just like that. From the very first Adam to the very last person, whoever that is on earth who breathes their last, they will have sin. And that was laid upon Jesus Christ. Crushed him. On that cross, Jesus took all the sin that God hates. Jesus took all the sin that you had, I had, and he hates it. God's hatred is so great, it's beyond words, but in Christ, it was snuffed out, like, like your pilot light goes out sometimes uh, in the middle of winter, and you have to reignite it, but we don't have to reignite it because it was a once-and-for-all sacrifice that on that cross, the predetermined plan of God was that he would crush his one and only son. Did the spear, did the nails, did those things play a part? Yes, that was part of God's plan. But friends... You're not saved by the Roman spear or the Roman cross. You are saved by God, the Father, pouring out his love in righteous hatred, wrathful anger, solely, fully, completely on his son. That is the gospel. That's what you're saved from. You are not saved by anything else. The sin that evokes God's hatred, yes, God does hate. See, see, read Psalm chapter 2, was placed on his son. I hope that makes your beauty of all that God has done for you bigger. All of God's justice is placed on him. All of God's just loathing is placed on him, on Christ. You and I don't have to take it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We did see the light, and the light shone forth in great darkness. You know, and there are some people, and these truths were taught to me in college by many people, my friend Brian Peters, who spoke here a couple months ago. But friends, I want you to remember that Jesus wasn't, at the, when we go, let me just back up. When we go to the garden, you know the phrase in the garden, Jesus is there on the, on the Passion Week, and he's praying, Lord, if it be thy will, take this cup from me. You know that, that preaching, you know that. You've been around church, take this cup from me. The, you know, some people say that cup, that Jesus must have been doubting God's plan, or he didn't want to do it, or, you know, he just had second thoughts about what God told him to do. That's, that's wrong, and it's right at the same time. Look, there have been people who have died on crosses for Jesus that stood up willing to die at the very last, who breathed their very last, Stephen being one of them, stoned in Acts chapter 8, just 7 and 8. Were they greater than Jesus during that day? No, they weren't. What was the cup that Jesus referred to that he wanted to pass from him? Why was Jesus, do you think Jesus would have cowered and fretted? Not at all. Is Jesus less than these martyrs? No. Jesus wasn't saying on that day, Lord, take this cup from me in an hour because he was thinking about nails or Roman cross or whips or crown of thorns or a spear in his side. He was thinking, Father, I've always had a perfect relationship with you and I've always been the most perfect union with you. 
But Lord, I know that you created me for this one reason, that on that cross I would take all the wrath that you should give out to them is going to come down to me. The cup was not just a cup of anything else, but the wrath of God that came down through the centuries. Friends, God did that for you. If you're here today, God had loved you so much that he took your punishment that you deserve. Don't let that seep through your ears without making thought about that. God didn't save you because the Romans killed Jesus. God saved you because on that cross he took your wrath. And why did God the Father, meaning you know your Bibles, it said the Father turned his face away. Why did he turn his face away? Was it because he felt sorry for him? No. It goes back to Proverbs chapter 17 because Christ in that moment had become an abomination. God the Father had laid upon his son all the sin and he now became detestable in his eyes. All you parents know, and, and you can't do, you know, sometimes your kids, and our kids aren't to the stage, but they, we can read the nonverbals, that when sometimes they, it's like they say you can't get your eyes off of them, or teachers used to have eyes in the back of their head. That always freaked me out as a little kid. You know that to be true. But friends, the father turns his face away, and the son becomes an abomination. The worst of the worst of the worst times a million becomes an abomination. First for his glory, and second because he loved us so much. Why would Christ do that for us? Friends, you and I are an abomination to the Lord outside of Jesus. For us to be saved, God had to die as an abomination. For God to save us, he was crushed under the wrath of God. That's what the cross means. The cross is not just physical suffering. The cross, yes, it is, but the cross is so much more. It's when God met all the righteous requirements of the law in his son. This is why, with respect to other beliefs, we do not have to go time and time again and confess our sins to someone who wears a cloth with respect. This is why we do not have to go in the Muslim world to go to the local uh, imam and, and, and ask to literally kill ourselves that we might believe that there would be 70 some virgins on the other side. This is why we believe that we do not have to worship a pantheon of gods known as Hinduism and hoping that if we light this candle for this God on this day and we do this for this God on this day that somehow we'll be a better person on the next life. Friends, this is why if your mama is a Christian, that you're not a Christian by extension, that you yourself have to know Jesus Christ. This is why we believe that in Christ, in Christ, everything is made right. It is not Pastor Darren, it's not Pastor Matt, it's not Pastor Gilbert, it's not anyone else but Christ. I hope you're grateful for that. Because I don't know about you, even serving after a while gets tiring. I saw some people yesterday who were so tired working in our church. Uh, Holdsworth, I can pick on you. You guys are going to start your own vacuuming business. They vacuumed basically this whole sanctuary and all the businesses. They, you guys were tired. I knew you were, but they just kept working. And Dave, you said, uh, brother, I brought this up because you, you, we were joking in the way. You said, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this for, for good works or something like that. And you clarified yourself. And you said, to get my reward in heaven. Friends, we aren't saved by good works. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. Amen? That's what the Bible says. So friends, what does this leave us with? Let me just leave you some faith lessons as we close. Friends, the gospel is, is that Christ is sufficient for your sin. Christ is sufficient. That everything we have goes back to what he did. That is what our church is founded on, gospel-centered. That is what our lives are to be founded on. But let me just tell you, give you some very practical things. I was trying to word these right, so I hope, hope these make sense. But number one, what does this mean for you? 
God says the worst about me. I deserve hell. But he also says the best, that I am love and I am justified. So what you say about me is held in that perspective. Many of you struggle with who you are in Christ, as we all do, even pastors. Matt, you know this. Even a pastor, we got it all together, right, brother? Not at all. Not quite. Actually, probably worse so. But in the great exchange on that cross, the worst of me, my sin, was laid upon Christ, and the best of him, his righteousness, was laid upon me. That's the gospel. And it's a great joy that ripples through my bones when I remember that God saw me at my absolute worst. Remember, I'm an abomination to me, and he looked at me and he said, I want that guy. I want that girl. I want that one. Because I'm prettier than the rest. Oh, by golly, you've seen me for two years. You know that ain't the truth. Because he's graceful. He's awesome. And he's loving. You know, most of us have tried to measure our lives up in the eyes of others, but my worst critic is sometimes myself. But then the Holy God sent his son, and his love was lavished on me, and I know I don't have to try and impress people anymore. It's not about me. It's all about him. Rest in that fact today. Many of you struggle with trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever that is. Friends, spiritually, you don't have to. Christ already did it for you. That's what it means. Second thing, most of you really struggle with, every Christian struggles with this. But why the cross? Because you are no less saved on your worst day and no more saved on your best. Let that sink in for just a second. When you feel like the absolute worst Christian in the world, maybe it's sin and you should feel weight of that sin even before you confess that to God and receive his goodness. But even on the best day where, man, you're clicking off, you, you've, like, you've witnessed to the checkout counter person, you talked to that, that co-worker that you never shared the gospel with before, you went to church and you were the loudest singer in the crowd. I mean, even Gilbert's up there like, whoa, this is good. You know, uh, you, you're like the best of the best of best, everything Christian. Guess what? You're no less saved on your worst day as a Christian. You're no less saved on your best. Praise the Lord. Why? Because we need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail. And we need to remember that it's much more that so when we succeed. Your good works don't keep you any more than they could save you. You're saved by grace and you're kept by that very grace. And Christian, I want you to remember this, that you are more saved than you feel. You are more saved than you feel. Let's, let's, set up the, let's set up the guardrails here. Yes, if God is working in your life and you never come to Christ and you need to confess that sin to him and he's dealing with your heart, deal with that. Don't assume you're a Christian. Check it out, First John. But if you know that you've repented and trusted Christ, then you need to rest in that fact. Don't let the weight of Satan throw it at you. Christian, you are more saved than you feel. And if you're one of these people that tear up when, when someone talks about Jesus, I love you for that because that is what Jesus did for you. It's okay to cry. Guys, it's okay to cry when you think about this simple phrase, Jesus loves me. And you start singing that in your head. Yes, Jesus loves me. And our daughter at home, she goes, hooray. Yes, <laughs> Jesus loves me. True story. You breathe more grace to me than a hundred sermons when you tear up or show affection that Christ saved your soul. That's why the cross. Two more things will be done. Friends, you don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. Matt, I, 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 I think I speak to this, and you know this to be true. Pastors fall on this a lot, don't we? We have to be super pastor. Uh, there's, a, there's a sickness over here. There's a meeting over there. There's all these things. Brother, we're, uh, you were a Superman shirt all the time. You might be Superman, but I know for ourselves that uh, sometimes as pastors, we try and show ourselves to be more super than we need to be. Friends, you're not a super Christian either. 
I'm not, a pa- I'm not a super pastor just because I'm standing up and preaching on a pulpit. We have nothing to prove. I posted this on Facebook a couple of days ago, and I, it's been running in my soul, but we have nothing to prove. We just have a Savior to trust. That's why as a church, guys, we don't have to keep up with the latest Christian fads. You realize 15, 17 years ago, it was all about the prayer of Jabez, then the purpose-driven life, and then, uh, and then the emergent church, if you remember all that stuff. And now, look, guys, we don't have to keep up with the latest Christian fads. We just need to be faithful and keep up with what God's doing in our midst. Amen? Hope you believe that. When your identity is in the gospel, you don't feel superior to anyone. You have nothing to prove to anyone as well. That's why as a pastor, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to get to the bigger conferences. I'm not trying to do those things. That's why I, I pray if you see that in me, that you confront me as I should be confronted, as our church should be confronted. We do not want to be anything but Christ called us to be, to be faithful, to be loving, to be all the things that God requires of us. That's what we want to do. Why? Because of the cross. I'm trying to get the quote in my head, but I, I didn't put it in my notes. But Dr. Stephen Lawson put a very arresting quote. He, he basically said this, that, uh, well, I'll, I'll find it and I'll send it out. But basically, Dr. Stephen Lawson argued that it's not the people that wear the cross who are truly Christians. A lot of people wear a cross. It's those who bear the cross who are the Christians. There's a big difference there. Big, big difference. Last thing. Life is short. Hell is forever. And God saves through the proclaimed word. Spend and be spent for souls. So much in our Christian life, even though we know this great message of the gospel, we smell more like sheep than we do like goats. If you want to know what a goat smells like, the Kansas City Zoo, here's your free promo. They have a new exhibit there, and then you can feed them and all those things. We had goats here. Did we have goats yesterday at our Easter thing? I think so. Uh, goats and sheep smell bad bothly, yes, but they smell different as well. Christian, I would ask you, do you know, is your circle of friends such that it's just a Christian bubble? And that's not always a bad thing. We need accountability. We need fellowship. We need to be in the Word with other people. But are you around those people that don't know Christ? Have you looked at your calendar, your, 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 your business life, your retirement, your neighbors, your, your weekly trips? Uh, you know, if, if Starbucks knows to write your name when you walk in the window, but they don't know about Jesus, that ought to be an arresting comment to us. It really should. Even if they never get it spelled right, and then you know that's a struggle for many of us. But the Bible says you can give yourself permission to believe. Romans 6, 14, you are not under law, but a grace. It's really okay. Give yourself to God unreservedly. Give yourself to him. He gave everything for you. He gave everything for you. Young man or woman, don't waste your life. Uh, John Piper wrote a book on that called Don't Waste Your Life. It's a classic Christian read, but you will be soon be old and worn. Spend your life for things on this life that matter. Put down the video games. Put down the TV. Darren, you're turning into like a Puritan uh, Mennonite in front of our eyes. Maybe so. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Give yourself to Christ's call. Do you realize, uh, uh, Michaela, if I can, uh, I'm thinking of our young sister here. Uh, sister, you went overseas, and, and you're, you fit a very good statistic in the sense that over 8 out of 10 missionaries that are young people are women, just like that. Luke, Aaron, you guys broke the stereotype. Men are 2 out of 10 of every international missionary. Isn't that crazy? Guys, rise up. Men, have you considered that your retirement might be a call to go somewhere where you have never even thought of yet? Have you prayed about that? Has God deal, dealt with your heart that way? Yes, that might even be Kansas City, Kansas for some of you. That might be, uh, I don't know, that might be Junction City, Kansas. I don't know. But it could also be Timbuktu at the South Horn of Africa. Men, 
Rise up. Life is short. And if you're retired, I encourage you. I, I love we have so many retired people serving the church. Guys, thank you for that encouragement. Uh, Miss Betty, we posted a picture of you on Facebook the other day. Many of you saw this. You had your cute little hat. And at, at a very young age, Miss Betty and so many of you uh, who work in busy hands are, are serving the Lord that way. You find whatever God's calling you to do. Be faithful. Why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Guys, I love you all so much. But God loved us even more. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died and took the wrath for us. Let's pray.